0: Uh, when I was a child, we used to sing a song here, uh, one of those Sunday school songs that you have. It, it went, have we made our God too small, too small, have we made our God too small? He made the heavens and earth and rains on high and he's got the time for you and I. That song had terrible grammar, <laughs> but it had great applied theology for us. It's told of the God who made the world and who reigns over it in authority and yet who draws near and close to us, who's interested and involved in the details of our lives. And it asks an important question, have we made our God too small? I think that's an important question for us to ask today. Maybe I'm wrong on this, but I suspect that 21st century world city citizens like we are are particularly prone to shrinking God down and compartmentalizing him into certain aspects of life, if not sidelining him altogether. We were told that the internet would connect us with diverse networks of people all around the world. And what we've tended to do is to build networks with people who are just like us and who tell us what we want to hear. Even the physical act of looking at your mobile phone, as I've just asked you to do now, uh, you lean inwards, don't you? There's something about our culture that curls us in on ourselves. And if those are some of the symptoms of one of the sicknesses of our age. I suggest that this psalm that Psalm 92 is a good tonic for us to take in. This is a psalm that calls us to take notice of the Lord who is over and who is in every aspect of our lives. Have we made our God too small? Well, if we have this psalm could be just what we need to hear. It is in a word a call to worship. It's a call to recognise who God is and what he does and to respond to him rightly. And so then with our time together this afternoon, I want to draw out three reasons why we should worship as I think they emerge from this psalm. Why should we worship? Well, here's the first reason. Worship restores our souls. Worship restores our souls. Uh, Verses 1 to 3. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night to the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp. The Hebrew scholars tell me that the first line here is more emphatic in the original. It literally begins, not, it is good, or even how good it is, but rather, good, good to praise the Lord. There's an enthusiasm about it that jumps straight in, it is good to praise the Lord. Now it deserves saying straight away that the main reason it is good to praise the Lord is that he is worthy of our praise. More precisely, he alone is worthy Of our praise. The God of the Bible is the God who made the world and who redeemed the world, who has no rivals or equals. There's no greater name by which we can call. So, in the words of the prayer book, the minister says, Let us give thanks unto the Lord our God. And the congregation says, It is meet and right to do so. In today's language, it is right to give thanks and praise. That's why verse 8 is central to the psalm. It stands there on its own as a hinge on which everything balances. But you, Lord, are forever exalted. That's crucial. It is so important a point that we're going to spend a whole lunchtime looking at it when we read Psalm 96 together in A Fortnight's Time. For today, though, I want us to notice that it is also good to worship because it is good for us to worship. See how verse 2 is focused on the character of God. We're to proclaim his love and his faithfulness, and we're to do it in the morning and at night. Now, maybe there is some wisdom in taking that literally. As you start the day each morning, do you set your heart and mind on the Lord? Do you remember who he is and what his character is like? Maybe you have a morning quiet time where you read the Bible and you pray. You're reminded of God's work in the gospel, how he's come to us in love in the flesh to seek and to save us, how he's been faithful in his promises, in his word, as fulfilled in the person of Jesus, and you pray in response in the light of those things. And perhaps at night, you reflect on the day that's gone, you say your prayers as you go to sleep. It's a good practice. There's good wisdom behind it. But the thrust of this psalm must surely be that we proclaim God's love and faithfulness, not just in the morning and at night, but in all the time in between as well. Worship is not something we do for half an hour at the start of a day or for an hour and a half on a Sunday. Worship is something we do all day. It's a full-time occupation for us. So worship might be about a quiet time. But look again, it doesn't seem to be all that quiet. There's music going on, music to God's name, the music of the lyre, the melody of the harp. There's something actively good about expressing our worship. Being a Christian isn't just about acknowledging true things about Jesus, it is responding to those true things. It is good for us in mind and in body and in soul to get off our chests truth about God and his work in the world. As ever, the great Victorian preacher C.H. Spurgeon has illustrated this well. He once said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. He said, It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. So for instance, verse 4, I sing for joy at what your hands have done. It's a spiritually healthy thing to do, to tell the Lord of his greatness. That's why I'm so grateful for Michael and for the others who help us to sing when we meet together like this. I was speaking once with Noel Trudinick. I I was thanking him for leading us in song uh, as we do at these lunchtime services. Uh, I said that a lot of similar ministries elsewhere will just have a a Bible talk. uh, And he replied with a twinkle in his eye, ah, but we're worshippers, aren't we? And I think that's the spirit, isn't it? Yes, to hear God's word, but yes, to respond to it. The delight is incomplete Until it is expressed, as Spurgeon says. Well, I promise you three reasons. I've taken half my time with the first one. I'll speed up. Here's here's number two. Worship transforms our everyday. Worship transforms our everyday. You may have noticed it at the top of the page. There, it was read for us. This psalm has a heading. It says, "A psalm, a song for the Sabbath day." Psalm 92 is unique among the psalms in having an ascription that it is to be sung on the Sabbath. Now the scholars disagree over what that's about. Genuinely, they seem puzzled about the relevance of the Sabbath to this psalm. The great Bible teacher Alec Matea writes, it's not at all obvious why Psalm 92 was so specially linked with the Sabbath. But I have a theory The Sabbath, in Old Testament terms, was a day of rest from labour and of corporate worship together as the people gathered, as they remembered the promises of God in the past and as they celebrated their fulfilment among them. It anticipated the true and the full Sabbath that would come about in Jesus Christ. He called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, click on that thought, pause it, we'll come back to it in a moment. For now, think about that corporate worship aspect of things. God's people recalling his promises and witnessing to their fulfilment among them. That is what Christians do when they gather together. Day by day, hour by hour, in a world that doesn't recognise Jesus as Lord, our minds and our hearts are being shaped by the false promises made by false gods. Our worship, both individually and corporately, Reorients our vision of God and of life in His service. Our worship transforms our view of what God is doing in us and through us in our lives. Is what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote to the church in Colossae. Uh, He said this, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. There it is again that the message of Christ among us expressed in song. But what does it do? What's the outcome of that message dwelling among us? He immediately goes on to say, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In other words, the meeting together of God's people to hear the gospel message isn't an end in itself. It's good and it's a wonderful thing, but it serves as an explosive action. The gathered community of God sends one another out into the whatever you do of Colossians 3. What we do together ought to equip us for lives of worship in each of the spheres that the Lord has put us to witness and to serve there. And again, it's why there's wisdom in the liturgy. There at the end of an Anglican service, the minister says, go in peace to love and serve the Lord, and the congregation replies, in the name of Christ, amen. It's that that's in view here. It's right to gather, good to hear God's word. It is fitting to respond to it in praise. But the direction of travel, of the gospel, it's centrifugal. What we do together equips us for sending out, for scattering us into the places God has put us to witness and to serve. So again, I've got to ask, have we made our God too small? Is he the God just of our church meetings? Is he the God of your Thursday lunchtime? or of the whole of your Thursday, the whole of your week? Is he the God of our work, of our commute, of our family life, of our friendships? We worship God as we live to his praise and his glory in every sphere of our life. And as we take our knowledge of God at work in us and through us into those places, the Lord is glorified in us and through us. So, worship transforms our everyday. Here's a third and a final reason to worship the living God. Worship anticipates our future. Worship anticipates our future. Uh, verses 9 to 11 here For surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish, all evildoers will be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. We were thinking last week as we looked at Psalm 91 of the victory that God wins over evil in the person of the Lord Jesus. We were thinking of the protection that the Lord gives from judgment we were thinking of the safety and security that we have if we trust in Christ and in his forgiveness of our sins, in his victory on the cross and here we see that coming out again the enemy, the enemies of God defeated, vanquished and we see us as those who are hidden, safe, in God lifted up and exalted Uh, verse 10 there is great if you read it in the old translations Uh, you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox Uh, if you read it in the King James version uh, it will say you've exalted my horn like that of a unicorn which I always find enjoyable uh, to see unicorns cropping up in the older translations of the Bible Uh, the horn was a picture of strength it was often associated with the king Uh, and with the victory in battle that the king would win on behalf of the people. And here we have that picture again uh, of the victory of the Lord coming in battle, winning. There is, in the midst of the struggles and distresses of this life, a real confidence in the victory that God wins in the person of his son on our behalf. Uh, the horn of his king, his conqueror, and we are exalted and held up in him. That is a place of confidence for us. It leads to worship and to celebration. As we see the good things that God has done, as we sing for joy at the works of his hands, there is something anticipating our future in our present worship and that's where the psalm closes verses 12 to 15 there the righteous will flourish like a palm tree they'll grow like a cedar of lebanon planted in the house of the lord they will flourish in the courts of our god they will still bear fruit in old age they will stay fresh and green proclaiming the lord is upright he is my rock and there is no wickedness in him Way back at the beginning of the Bible story in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve put in the garden to be fruitful, to tend the garden and keep it to be fruitful and to multiply in it. And God's intentions for his people have not changed since. He longs for us to be fruitful people, to live well I take it that means to live in the knowledge of the salvation that we've thought of, to live in the knowledge of who God is, to respond to him in lives of worship that reach into every aspect of our living, all of the things that we do. But it's also a picture there of the future. That picture of bearing fruit in old age, of staying fresh and green, that is a picture of the great Sabbath rest and our future of life in Christ in eternity. The psalm begins, verse 2, with proclaiming love in the morning and faithfulness at night. It ends, verse 15, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no wickedness in him. And for us to live in the light of these things... Well, it is to trust in the Lord, it is to respond to his call on us, it is to live lives of worship, but it is to anticipate something that is yet to come, where fruitfulness and spiritual uh, growth, where our security will be made sure for us. To bear fruit in old age, to stay fresh and green, and to keep proclaiming, that the Lord is upright, that he is our rock. I think the psalm is a call for us now to be people who worship, but it's a call for us to anticipate that great future that we have, that eternity, that great Sabbath where we will praise and glorify our God for his work in us that we've seen, not just promised, but fully come to fruition among us. So with that in mind, we're going to sing a final song. It's a song that helps us to think about salvation in the Lord Jesus. It's a song that helps us to see God's work in the details of life. It is a song that helps us to sing for joy at the works of his hands. So let's stand and sing it together now.